Welcome to the second episode of the Open Door Podcast, where we explore issues surrounding cultural identity with people of different ethnic and professional backgrounds. My name is Anthony. And my name is Patrick. So this week we talked to Sophia Liu. She's uh, a British Vietnamese experience designer at McKinsey & Co. But she also co-founded On The Mend, which is a creative studio that aims to use tailored workshops and art to tackle healthcare inequalities and uh, just sort of bring more awareness to people that are underrepresented in the healthcare system. If you find that interesting and want to learn more about it, the link is in the description where you also find timestamps if you want to jump about the episode. Anyways, here's Sophia. So you're half Irish, English and half Vietnamese. Yes, I am. Uh, which languages do you speak? So I speak, well, English, obviously, but I would say like proficient Vietnamese. Like, I'm not fluent, fluent, but I can have a decent conversation. And that also depends at which time of, like, time of year or, like, how often I've been exposed to Vietnamese at that time. Sometimes I'm really good. Like, right now I'm rusty. So when you're really good, are you comfortable with politics and stuff of that level? Not really. I think my strongest topics are, like, food, obviously, medicine, (laughs) and then just general gossip <laughs> which I think to be honest that if, if you want to speak Vietnamese and you've got those three topics covered very well like I think you're fine <laughs> one thing I've always found very difficult to explain to my grandparents is what I do for a living there have been so many wrong interpretations and my dad's tried my aunties have tried no one can do it last time I heard my nan thought that I was um a painter decorator that also did chemistry And I was like, creds to whoever's got that kind of vast, varied qualifications in the world. But it is not me. But she was like, is it a good job? And are you happy? And I was like, yes. And so she's like, okay, that's all I need to know. Yeah, that's all that matters. That's all that matters. (laughs) Yeah. Well, medicine, that's impressive. I can't talk about medicine in Cantonese. (laughs) I don't think I can. It's weird, though, because like you have the parts of the body and the types of pain it is. And then the names of certain types of asian medicines and like i don't know what you call it in english but i guess ointments but then everything else will just be like paracetamol is paras- <laughs> <laughs> do you know what i mean just like a okay. general and then okay. everyone seems to get what you're saying so <laughs> gotcha. yeah. also there's a lot of loan words in in vietnamese from different languages yeah definitely in fact i had this conversation very strangely with my brother's girlfriend the other day she's French, half French, and a lot of Vietnamese words come from French because of, you know, colonialism and everything. But like, so many words, like the word for butter, for example, is beurre. And obviously, that's the same in French. There are so, so, so many, like the word for chocolate is socola. And you can literally hear that that is chocolate. Do you know what I mean? (laughs) Um, But so, so many. And I think the, the interesting thing is, for the most part, you can always tell if the word is of foreign influence, if it's more than one syllable. Most Vietnamese words are only one syllable long. And so a word like socola, that's three syllables. So that's definitely like a vietified version of a foreign word, basically. Because we've talked about this when we first met, but like the difference between not knowing how to read a language and oh, then right. being able to speak it quite well. 
and also listening to it quite well. I think my listening is the, the best because of how exposed I was as a child to it. Especially when my mother was angry. I, my listening was very good. <laughs> just, 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 I sort of developed bat-like sense to see if she was coming to... If she was angry or not. <laughs> just to listen to the tone of her voice and what she says, yeah. It was trained through fear, I think. <laughs> I was going to say, but never, never to learn what not to do so you don't upset her again, but just to know when she's angry. <laughs> yeah. When she's in Cantonese, know when she's angry, then no. Yeah. But I think in Cantonese, there's a few... I wouldn't say loan words, but we sort of use words to try to replicate English words as best as possible. So mm. the one that comes to mind is Obama, which is Obama, Obama. Obama. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, that's the only word I can think of right now. I don't think it's a loan word. We just sort of use our own characters to try to replicate. Mm. I might be wrong about that. but. And you, Patrick, what's been your experience of like, your relationship with reading versus oh, speaking? It gets a little bit frustrating for me. I'm a very logic-oriented person, and a language that you can speak but can't read or write because the, the rules are different, the grammar is different, and you're using formal words rather than informal words, it just doesn't make sense to me. It, it mm. really does... It's, it's very inefficient to me, and it does frustrate me sometimes. Yeah, I'm better at speaking. I used to be okay at reading, but because I haven't really practiced it, I think I've lost most of that skill or yeah. like whatever skill I did have. <laughs> and yeah, I think the the words is transliteration for the Obama example, where in Chinese it's basically the same. I think it's called a transliteration. I did not know there was a word for this. Oh, really? <laughs> well, yeah. it's because my partner was trying to learn Cantonese when we were together. And yeah, she, she found out, like, she taught me a lot about Cantonese, man. Like, <laughs> through her journey on learning Cantonese, we learned a lot together. There was a lot of stuff I had to Google because a lot of this stuff just comes naturally to me. It's like instinct, mm. what sounds right and what isn't right. So she asked me if this sentence makes sense. And I'd be like, no. But I don't know why, because yeah. you should be able to use that word instead of the one that, you know, and then I have to look it up. And then, yeah, I learned a lot about the theory and the literature of Cantonese when she was trying to learn. What's her background? So like me, she did forensics. We met at uni um, and she's now actually uh, a, a science teacher. She's gone on to just teach in schools. And I mean, that. Oh, do you mean background as in where is she from or major? Yeah, which is yeah, a whole sorry. other topic of conversation, can't. isn't <laughs> sorry, it? Sorry, I'm so sorry. Because no, I, just... I was, no, <laughs> I'm, but no, the reason I ask is because I guess it's a whole other question, but like learning a language in order to get closer to someone, because in my head, when you said that your partner was learning, I was like, oh, okay, is this for themselves? Or is this just kind of like with me in Vietnamese and reading, just as you get older, you're like, oh, I want to get in touch with my roots. But then you sounded so shocked when you said she's even teaching me something. I was like, oh. oh right, yeah, she's British. She's white British. White um, British. Oh, okay. Yeah. Now I understand why you were yeah, so shocked. Sorry, like, <laughs> I, I should have, yeah, I, I, I should have clarified. Um, yeah, yeah, it was a really interesting journey because when you learn a language from a really young age, you just pick it up, don't you? You just absorb it. And then you just learn the rules. You don't really question it. You'd, and it is so weird to have 
a fully aware adult learning it you know from the beginning and then starting to question everything that you yeah. haven't questioned before and you're like that, you're right that doesn't make sense actually <laughs> <laughs> and I can't even tell you I got I, I can just say sorry I'm, I don't know like <laughs> um, she initially learned it to get closer with my family and stuff and we talked about um, the future I, and I said mm. If I ever have kids, I would want them to be able to speak Cantonese. It's so um such an important thing, which I feel our generation is just on the cusp of. I was listening to this really, really interesting podcast. I can't remember where, what it was about now, but it was um about a guy whose grandma was West Indian, and it was basically talking about him, the grandson, being the last person in the family who will have an intimate relationship of someone who grew up in the West Indies and talking about it and living that culture and life. And I think a lot of the way us as like second or third gen are definitely going to face that dilemma if we have children and how do you keep a tradition going? Like even to talk to my own children about my grandma and some of her little isms, like I see it with my younger cousins as well. Um, I really love this example, but one time my cousin got really upset, my younger cousin, because my ba, my grandma told her off for colouring outside their lines. She proper, told, not proper told her off, but like, <laughs> you should be more careful because that's such a waste of ink. And obviously that comes from a certain time, a certain place, yeah. and also being a refugee and really taking care of your things. But obviously my cousin being brought up in the Western context didn't understand that necessarily. And I already see how even with the generation under me, it's already starting to slip. So then I think, oh my goodness, by the time I have kids, and if I have kids with my current partner, who he's half Dutch as well, he's already lost so much Dutch culture. What is this child going to navigate? I find it a very interesting question. And I think one that is only going to become more and more common, the more people, you know, move around, spread the love. Have you guys thought about ways to prevent the further generation from becoming too detached from your own culture? I have actually quite a bit. I think that's that. I think that's because I had a bit of a broody phase during lockdown, and I was like, "Oh, maybe you know, maybe I should be a mother soon." And I was quickly <laughs> like, "No, what are you doing? <laughs> just chill out." So I was just bored. But one thing I actively do quite a lot is compare my youngest auntie and her relationship and the way she brings up her children, who. They're mixed race as well, um, half Vietnamese, half Scottish. And the dad is very like in touch with his Scottish roots. And then my auntie, born in Vietnam, but very much had a Western upbringing. So it's like the closest I can see to a kind of relationship like this. And she's done such an amazing job in the sense of when they were brought up, she spoke a mixture of Vietnamese to them at home, but she also exposed them a lot to their Scottish um, side and like taught them about tartans. Like she's really, really tight on the roots. But I think just naturally what happens when you can't be the sole provider of that culture for somebody it does just start to unravel like when the little kids were younger they only used to know how to call for milk in Vietnamese and now that that slowly went as like less and less people understood what sữa meant right when they were calling for milk and that and now she started teaching all the cousins to read Vietnamese again and I see that interest being sparked again in the kids but I think what we're talking about here is like years and years of someone eventually coming to know where they're from and I'm sure we've all had experiences where for example 
eating certain types of food at breakfast was completely normal and then you start doing it at school and uni and everyone's like why are you eating rice for breakfast this is so weird like it's only when you're encountered with difference that you realize what your upbringing was like but I think one thing I worry about is I think perhaps us as parents must have to be a lot more conscious of that and what we're exposing our children to and what is maybe more westernized versus what is more from our Asian side and I think about it a lot actually I don't have an answer but it's definitely on my mind hmm Patrick have you thought about active ways you could do to absolutely because <laughs> okay so this is gonna slightly contradict what I said about my character earlier where I'm not very emotional but <laughs> I am quite sentimental so something I've been trying to do lately is whenever I talk to my grandparents about history, like our family history, I will try and record it on my phone so that I have mm. that later for kids or just for my own recollection, I guess. And I think it is important to get your family history because like, I don't know about you guys, but I really don't really know my family history that well. Mm. Um, so my family's from this like really tiny village in Hong Kong and th there's a lot of history there that's just waiting to be unraveled but my my family being very typical Asians aren't very emotional they just don't really talk about the past that much um, mm. whenever they do it's as a lesson you know to teach me something <laughs> but it's not it's not for memory lane purposes so yeah sometimes I'll like call my granddad and I'll just ask him about what it was like when he was a kid and I'll try and record the call just so I have that on record hopefully someday my kids will care enough to listen to these recordings <laughs> <laughs> it's so interesting that you bring this up because all of my family are refugees from the Vietnam war mm. and my auntie doesn't remember any of it like she just remembers being brought over on a plane like three men in our family had really difficult journeys to get to the UK and three completely different stories as well. And we've only ever heard them in dribs and drabs. Sometimes my dad might say, yeah, when I was in the um, refugee camp, I used to make my own toys out of tins and then move on. And I'm like, hang on, can we just rewind a little bit? And like, yeah, you know, oh, I used to have to wear pink jeans because they were the ones donated to us. And like all these random things that just come out. And then my granddad would sometimes just pop up this story. This one is a mad story, but like, essentially when the communists came, they took over like one of my granddad's aunties, like their house and everything. And everyone fled except the auntie because she was too old. But apparently the communist leaders were really nice and they just let her stay at the bottom of the garden. And she was really religious and obviously that was a lot of conflict with the communist people. Then one day, my auntie auntie or whatever her relation is, she comes home and this woman is in bits and she's like, what's happened? And the woman's like, I've just been scammed, lost all my money, the guy's gone, like I'm ruined. I haven't told my husband yet. And then the auntie was like, just go to the church just pray I know it's not your thing but like you've lost everything so you might as well so she goes and apparently she just heard this random voice telling her to just go as far away as she can so she got a taxi this is literally the last amount of money I have in my pocket take me as far as this fare will allow and he took her to a port and then apparently she saw the scammer getting on the port at the ferry and then they caught him it's one of those like mad stories and then my granddad always whips it out as like this is why you should be religious story 
And then apparently he went back to the village like 10 years ago now, told the story and the, that woman or the relative of that woman was sitting in the audience and was like mad. And so I always hear all these random stories, but never how they piece together. And so a couple of years ago, me and auntie were like, let's go and try and record this and get everyone together. We said to Ongunbear, we want to record your experience of how you fled the country, how you came to the UK and that waiting period before you were reunited together again. And so my granddad starts to tell the story in quite a lot of detail, actually. But then when we got to my nan, she was like, well, what is there to say? I just waited for two or three years, like to hear back from everyone. And then I joined them in the UK. And I was like, <laughs> well, that is totally just not what happened. And then like, the more she started to speak, she realized, wow, actually I was worried sick. I woke up every day. I didn't even know if my kids were alive. I had to make the difficult decision to like, let them escape on their own. And it was fascinating just watching this kind of transformation in her at first being very kind of tough skin, strong woman, not even thinking about it that deeply, like, oh, nothing happened, I just waited. And then actually kind of confronting those memories mm. on camera as well. It was very emotional. And then she actually rang us back the next week and said, actually, can you come back? I want to do it again. Oh, so no. then it... It's fascinating and we actually haven't done the second round yet because we all got distracted with other things. But I think it's an interesting way to maybe unlock mental health conversations. It's not necessarily like, how is your mental health? How are you feeling? But more, can you tell me about this time in the past and how it made you feel? And then mm -hmm. watch them kind of realise it themselves. Yeah, yeah, I think I would love to do that just to get the whole family again, not just direct family but very distant relatives and just all get together and reminisce about our past because like you just said just someone else bringing up a memory triggers your own memory as well things you've forgotten and things you've deliberately forgotten and suppressed or never realized but yeah that really inspired me actually maybe when i have kids i'll get the family together and have a history lesson this way that might be more fun can you tell us sophia your relationship with vietnam compared to britain are you quite intimate with the country or not very no, actually. I've only been back, been back. That's, that's another one that's interesting in like our family conversations is people say when you're going back. And even yeah. now I say when I went back to Vietnam, but I only been once. Um, <laughs> but um, I, I guess because of the relationship they've all had with the war, they meaning my elders just don't want anything to do with Vietnam anymore. All my immediate family are here. We've not had much reason to go back. And even my grandparents, most of their relatives are in America and Italy as well. So we've never actually had to go back for family reasons. And then my dad particularly, he had a really bad time and he just doesn't want to relate. And it was very bizarre because I think going to Vietnam for the first time, knowing so much about the culture, speaking the language quite well, but then looking predominantly white and still feeling like a tourist in the country was weird, 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 weird experience. And it was very strange because I think even just like the average person on the street would just look at you really odd. Then you start speaking to them and they're like even more freaked out. <laughs> and at first they're always like, you speak Vietnamese? Like they're always <laughs> like, eh? 
And then I start speaking to them more and then they, they start replying in English because they're like, I don't trust this person just yet. And then about five minutes into the conversation, it goes from really slow English replies to like a million miles a minute Vietnamese. <laughs> and I'm like, wait, I can't catch up with all of this. Um, it's weird. I wouldn't necessarily say I have a relationship with Vietnam, but I would definitely say that I feel very Vietnamese. And that is definitely something that I realized more and more as I got older. And I guess as well, there's that whole dynamic of like with being the eldest, there is always this kind of pressure, but also you definitely experience a lot more of the like Asian ideas of elderness when you are yourself an elder. So, yeah. It's because you're the closest to being a bridge between the previous generation and the next generation, right? Because I get mm. the same as well. I'm, I think I might be the eldest out of all of my cousins and stuff. Mm. Um the rules seem to get more and more lax as you get younger but mm. the standards Honestly. for the first the eldest one is always like <laughs> you will become a nun was mine yeah. they were like <laughs> oh then by the time it's like the newest baby they're running around doing their own thing and it's like oh aren't they cute baby <laughs> like you said you felt like you were a tourist in vietnam even though you had heritage roots what kind of impact did that have on you did you Ooh. sort of have difficulty with your identity and where you belonged in the world? Do you know what? Seriously, I think for the past five or so years, I've just had a massive identity crisis just in general. I think it's so common with mixed race people and also people born from multiple cultures just in general. The whole Vietnam experience was so strange because it was like, with the family that we did meet there, like the extended cousins and that, it was literally like I was a sister, you know, a long lost sister and the amount of love I was shown, I, I felt so Vietnamese and at home and, you know, it was wonderful. Um, but yeah, like this going on the street experience was really bizarre. And I think, so two things, I think predominantly about the whole mixed race thing. So the first is this very uncomfortable relationship with whiteness, colorism, privilege, in the sense that, I could have just been a normal white Westerner, but the minute that they find out that I'm Vietnamese, but I'm white, it made me like 10 times more attractive in people's heads. Like you could actually watch them be like, oh my God. So the minute they knew I was Vietnamese, they were like, you're so beautiful. Whereas before it'd be like, oh, it's some random sweaty Westerner. And it was so like uncomfortable. And again, a lot of colonial like roots to why that is, but then right. also, this very difficult, um, you know, like the assumption that all Westerners are really, really rich and therefore they can spend money. And at the time I went, I was still a student, but still knew that I was in a much better off position than most of the people I met. And trying to navigate that and being like, well, I don't want to say that I don't have the money because even though according to our standards, I, I didn't feel financially stable or comfortable or anything. I was still in Vietnam. I could still afford the flight there, you know, but in terms of giving money, you can't give money to literally every person you meet. Or sure. can you? And there, there was so much guilt that came across from that. And even just this idea of free movement, right? So like a lot of people our age in Vietnam sometimes have issues going outside of the country. And I spoke to a lot of people who was trying to get visas and it's really difficult. And the amount of privilege that I had as, as a Westerner and also someone Bately looking as a Westerner. And then the other side of that is because I am mixed race, if my Vietnamese is really bad, 
it's not as if I look Vietnamese and speak bad Vietnamese. So people let me get away with it. And so now that I'm learning to read and everything, it's only now that I'm realizing, oh my God, all these words that I thought I was saying correctly all these years, I've been saying wrong, but no one corrected me because they were like, oh, but she's white. So at least she bothered learning, you know? Whereas I've got a couple of friends who are fully Vietnamese, but can't speak and they're instantly judged so much because it's like, how can this mixed race girl speak better than you? And it's your own blood. So it's a very, you know, difficult one. And then the obvious other one of like, not feeling like you belong to either of, or to all of the cultures you're part of is, is also tricky. And I think the other thing, so I was, I was doing a project <laughs> where I was looking at the black community or different black communities and their relationship with healthcare services. And I just remember thinking, oh dear, everyone's going to look at me and just assume that I'm a white girl again so I feel like I need to prove that I'm at least a little bit like have a bit of a Asian-ness or an otherness so that we have something to bond over and that caused me so much stress even though the conversations weren't about me but just being so aware of how I was perceived which is stupid and I remember I was talking to another of my friends she's mixed race and she was like you do know you don't look white though like fully white and I was like but I do. And also it's like, you might think that, but other people won't. And I'm always so obsessed with it. It's why I think I mention it so often. And even on my Instagram, it's like British Vietnamese designer, because I still feel like I haven't figured out that relationship yet. But right. to me, it feels important. Do you feel you will ever figure out? I don't know. I think parenting, as we said before, will definitely be something that will shake it up all over again. Right now yeah. it's image and the appearance of otherness. I read this really interesting quote somewhere and it was like, yeah, we were racially ambiguous before it was cool. Because, you know, when you grow up, people are always like, oh, but you look really strange or where are you from? Lots of different parts. Oh, what an interesting blend I used to get a lot. But now it's cool to be, you know, racially ambiguous. And even that, like when your race or identity becomes a trend and you're trying to take part in that, what does that leave you? It's very bizarre, very weird. So I think there'll always be a conversation. So this is quite an interesting question I've got. When I review are abroad and people ask you where you're from, do you say UK or do you say Vietnam? I always say um, Britain. Right. But then, really interesting... So I don't know what it is, but I actually find that Desi people and people from Middle East, obviously huge generalisation, but I find people from those different communities are more likely to spot that I'm mixed race. Like... So I've been meeting a lot of people from um, Iranian communities recently and they always staring at me like, are you from Britain? And I'm like, yeah. And they're like, no, but really, are you from Britain? And it's so funny because I'm getting those kind of like, but where are you really from questions, <laughs> but in a different context. And I'm always like, no, actually, I'm half Asian as well. And then everyone's like, oh, yeah, I see it. I see it. But no, abroad, I always say British and then I just wait for a follow up question. or not. <laughs> I think for me, when I was living in Korea, um, Sometimes it would be the questions, where are you from? But then follow up with, no, but where are you really from? That was quite rare, actually, in Korea. Sometimes they ask me where I'm from, and I'll just say UK, but they don't question further. And it's like, oh, okay, cool. Then they move oh. on, which is quite nice. Because uh, in my head, I always prepare a very full <laughs> summary of my <laughs> whole family history just to stop them from asking too many stupid questions. But I've got a stock answer, actually, which I always Go say on. to people. I say... I'm from the UK, but my family's from Hong Kong. They moved over here when I was <laughs> And then they're just like, oh, okay. And they leave me alone, 
which is great, which is what I wanted. So it works. Give them stock answers, then they won't have to, <laughs> won't have to bother you anymore. What did you say, Patrick? Have you ever had that situation? Yeah, it's weird because it's not static. Like, I don't give the same answer every time. And I only noticed this when I went to Dubai with my family. It was like a three-day layover on the way to Hong Kong. So in Dubai, they'd ask where I'm from. And I would say Hong Kong. But for some reason, my cousin, the one I mentioned earlier, who's three years younger than me, uh, she's also BBC. And she would say England. Mm. And... Whenever she gave the answer England, then they, obviously there would be that follow-up question like, where are you really from? And I don't know if I was just subconsciously skipping that whole step and just giving them straight what they want, like, I'm from Hong Kong. But in England, when I get asked that, I would just say, oh, I'm from Portsmouth. I wouldn't mm. say Hong Kong. It, it's really weird that my answer changes depending where I am. I, I'm not really mm. sure why. But I think that makes a lot of sense. Because it's almost like a way of tailoring to different cultures, but also a kind of F you to a British person who's like, but where are you really from? Because it's like, well, I am from Portsmouth. So do you know what I mean? But I've I've thought about it a lot. and, And I get the annoyance that bicultural people get in this country when white people ask that question. But... The intent of that question changes depending on when they ask that question. And who, so, I think. And and yeah. who, yeah. you just got to be a good judge of character of the person asking it and to see their intent. If they ask you that question at the very beginning of your relationship, as strangers, okay, first of all, why do you need to know? Yeah! <laughs> what, 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 I mean, okay, if you're, if you're working out, I don't know, immigration you're you're okay that question's okay i mean you have to ask that question but if i'm going to a bakery and you ask me while you're packing my bread where are you from i'm gonna i want to i want to see that question as a bit intrusive and inappropriate for that situation but if mm. a long friend say a white british friend after a few maybe a few months of friendship asked me that question i wouldn't be offended i'll be quite yeah, that's true actually quite happy that you're yeah. Taking take an interest in my heritage. So I think that question overall is quite annoying, but the context changes everything. That's so true. Yeah, I remember, um, so particularly after George Floyd's murder, when Black Lives Matter was a lot more in the press, um, my dad, which was great, was researching so much more into it. And um, he came across this post about why you should never ask someone where they're from, where they're really from. And my dad was so confused And he was like, but why would I do this? Because I like finding out where people are from and it's how I get my friends. And then obviously I was explaining to him, yeah, but if you're black, that doesn't not necessarily mean that you're not British. And that question implies that, you know, trying to explain it to him. But it was really interesting because his, not comeback, he definitely understood the reasons, but his um, response was fascinating because it was always like, almost a form of tribalism because it's like yeah but if I meet other Asians I want to know if they're Viet or like Mm. where they're from like literally where they're from and a lot of my dad's friends are from all over as well so he's um you know so and again I think that's why I really stressed on the who is asking the question because even for example the Iran examples I gave for some reason in my head because they were Iranian people asking me where you're really from 
it wasn't as offensive to me as if they were white and I don't know how I feel about that but in my head it, it makes more sense because it's almost like a understanding a belongingness or trying to find a f- togetherness through being of another culture it's such a diff and also the, cu- the kind of where are you from it's like it was kind of like earlier Patrick when I was like what's your partner's background I could have said what's their ethnicity or like it's such a question that people tiptoe around or have their own language around and uh, I think everyone is still trying to navigate that I think I just think it's a some on some people's part it's just a laziness of language I think because I think saying what's your heritage I think that's less offensive than saying where are you from I mm. think because it shows on their part they care about how their words come across and they also are actually interested in where your where heritage is but I think where you're from is a bit vague and unintentionally offensive I think it's almost like people keep it deliberately vague to judge almost like with your example Patrick to see what people say and then leave it at that because I don't think I should ask my dad this but I don't think my dad has ever gone where are you really from to somebody (laughs) like if they say Milton Keynes then he'll leave it at that do you know what I mean but (laughs) I I don't know I don't know it's interesting so on your website you've got a section labeled Sophia who and I'm not sure if that was like an intended pun but it uh, is don't worry yeah I love it you mentioned that one of your relatives have recently become a saint in Vietnam how does that work <laughs> this is one of those classic Asian grapevine stories right, right. so <laughs> basically a couple of years ago I was just chilling at home and all of a sudden this guy called Jam Mindang so father Mindang like he's just been popping up in a lot of conversations and my own my my granddad is like yeah this is my uncle or something like this and I was like what happened and he was like so basically he was this really successful priest in Vietnam I was like oh what do you mean granddad is a successful priest and he's like yeah so um he converted loads of people during the communist regime to Catholicism so that's successful and apparently he was so successful at this and so powerful that a lot of communists in the village wouldn't touch his kind of patch of churches oh wow by the way this is totally like a Chinese whispers story that I've heard <laughs> anyway so then Jam and Dang died in a motorcycle accident and his remains kind of splattered all over the, the road and apparently his parishioners collected the remains and spread them onto people who were sick and dying and they got better and now he's been canonized or like in the process of his canonization which is becoming the same it takes years when i went to vietnam like two years ago now we actually went to his kind of shrine and it was mad because there was this massive like i don't know like almost like a well, I guess a shrine. And then, and it was posted with all these tin plaques, which are called Da'an, which is like messages of gratitude. And everyone was saying like, thank you so much. I was in hospital and you helped me get better. And then this busload of people just get off at the shrine and start praying to him. And I'm just low key <laughs> sitting there thinking, this is my great uncle. They're literally praying to my great uncle. It was the most bizarre experience ever. But that's one of my like, you know, when people are like, oh, three truths, one lie. I always slot that one in just because (laughs) who would believe this? (laughs) Yeah, that's pretty crazy. That's, yeah, insane. So hang on, is he a saint yet? Has he acquired that 
saint status yet? No, so actually the st- sentence I use in my website is a bit clickbaity. <laughs> not actually, I don't remember all the steps, but he's had the first step on the way to the canonization, okay. which makes you a saint. Yeah. Hmm. Hmm. I know in Chinese culture, when relatives have passed away, we have these sort of rituals that we do for the dead. Um, do they have similar things in Vietnam? Did you do any similar things to pay respects to your relatives at his shrine? So we said a prayer, like a rosary prayer at his shrine. But I think, again, it's very deeply rooted in religion. So I know like a lot of Buddhist Vietnamese bring a lot of incense and they have the whole ritual mm. with their hands and everything. But we, we don't do that. We just um, We just say prayers. I know I've never personally done it myself, but on New Year, everyone goes to the graveyard for like the dawn and just prays until sunrise or sunset to like honor the dead. Sure. Um, but yeah, and, and actually I've been really fortunate that none of my elders have died yet. So I've not actually had to go through that process personally. But it's, it's very interesting because I think just comparing the West and Asia very generally, but it definitely feels like a lot of Asian cultures are much more rooted in ancestor and tradition mm. rather than over here in the West. And so navigating that as a mixed race person is quite interesting. Yeah, because yeah. whenever I used to visit Hong Kong, my grandmother's house, sadly, my grandfather passed away when I was very young from lung cancer. Mm. So in her house, she has this very thin sort of cupboard. And then at the center of the cupboard is a picture of my grandfather and... And every time they have dinner, they would give some food to him. So put it on the cupboard. Uh, so they would be having dinner together in spirit with the rest of the family. Yeah. And I could smell this enveloping incense. And whenever I leave, I spend it on my clothes. But it wasn't a bad smell. It, it felt really nice, actually. I think the West have something similar, like an urn on their mantelpiece or something like that. But <laughs> it's not the same as the ones in Asia where they have a sort of like a a mini shrine in their own home yeah and it, it's so it's so prevalent as well in the home i don't know what yours are like but in a lot of vietnamese homes it's always like a portrait in black and white which has yeah. been really heavily photoshopped <laughs> and then it's like a framed set of those usually with flowers or some fruit a lot of my friends who are buddhist their family's shrines have like durians or bananas that are just left there but no, we, I think again, like maybe because it's a Catholic thing, but we just have the photos and the prayers. Yeah. Patrick, how about your relatives in Hong Kong? Did you see like a mini shrine in, the, in your family's yeah. homes? So technically she would be my great aunt in English, but we just call her aunt in, in Chinese. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone's an aunt or an uncle, right? <laughs> um, and she's got something similar, like what Anthony mentioned with the slim sort of cupboard kind of thing and mm. the incense. Um, I don't think she would put out a portion of dinner or anything out. It would normally just be fruits, like bananas and oranges mm. and that sort of stuff. Um, I remember it kind of scared me as a little kid because there was always like a red light uh, in the car, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, like, like a candle, yeah. <laughs> and I was just like, yeah. that's kind of that looks a bit hellish to me. I'm not gonna go near that. <laughs> I think that's more of like a um, very traditional Chinese kind of thing. So it's that's kind of yeah, it's it's interesting that in both 
Vietnam and in Hong Kong, China areas, we do similar sorts of traditions. But it makes a lot of sense because like a lot of Vietnamese customs come from China. I think before the Portuguese came as well, Vietnamese writing was also characters and that mm. originated from China as well. But now it's all Latin alphabet. Because another thing I've always been interested in is whenever I go to like Winyet or Longdan or something, in the like random aisle, you know, there's always like that one random aisle where you can get like pots, pans, chopsticks, candle, anything. There's always paper money. Is that is that a tradition that either of you? Yeah, so we burn that in the hopes that that the money reaches them in the afterlife. Um, yeah, and it it's kind of weird to me the first time i saw it it was really weird because it's not just money that we burn you can get paper suits and paper watches and mobile phones that you burn as well and it's really it's kind of it's a little like i don't know it's just weird the first time i saw it it was just it was so weird that that's that's what we're doing like and it was it was really interesting how you could get paper, like literally iPhones, paper iPhones to burn. <laughs> that's brilliant. Like that's the, the it's like that industry evolved with the world. Like <laughs> you can get tablets and stuff, iPads that you're just burning, just like for for the dead and yeah, it's 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 so bizarre. Um, and are those things like when you buy them? Is it specifically for the funeral or the the ritual? Because or like, for example, could you ever just buy a pack of um uh, of paper money for your kids to play with? Or is that no? Really? Oh no no no, definitely not. No. Yeah. Why? It's like, it's bad luck. It's like that yeah. stuff is like bad aura, like bad energy. You don't want to be like just playing with that willy nilly. Essentially, like not yeah. that I believe this, but like you just wouldn't see a kid playing with that. Like it is not. Yeah. They're, they're not toys. Essentially. I- I, wow. I they'll be if if people saw that like Asian people they'll be in shock horror that <laughs> they're playing with it so casually, but I mean you don't have to burn it at funerals. I think I think you can burn it on anniversaries, right, of people's death. Yeah, it's not necessarily yeah. for the funeral, but that is fascinating. Yeah, it is. It's really interesting to hear the differences and similarities between the Vietnamese and Chinese culture. Let's talk more about your background and see if there's similarities and differences there. Perhaps you could tell us more about what it's like studying at Cambridge? Um, it was very like what you would imagine the history of art at Cambridge University to be like. Everyone was white, everyone was blonde, so even more of a narrow line. <laughs> and everyone went to boarding school. No joke, I think there's a class of 25. I think seven or eight of us were either mixed heritage and mixed identity and didn't go to a boarding school. And then I think my perception of class completely changed when we went to uni because there was people who were like millionaires just calmly wearing Chanel clothing in the lecture. And I'm like, what is this world? And like, I remember I remember it really hit home for me because in week one, we had this lecture where they showed um, Giotto, just some chapel, this Italian chapel with this artwork. He was like, has anyone been to this chapel? And literally a sea of hands go up. And some people were like, yeah, when I appeared there, like I had a trip to the Jotto <laughs> Chapel. And one girl actually goes, I saw the artwork and I, I genuinely burst into tears. It was that moving for me. And I was like, oh, shut up. Um, I just couldn't deal. I couldn't deal with this bollocks world. 
And then also, I remember um, we did one week where we covered non-European art. And also, European... Sorry, you've set me off now. But European <laughs> art was only English, French, Italian. I don't think we ever even covered even Spain, for example. I was just like, this is such a narrow way to view the world. And they're not encouraging genuine, interesting thinking. And then um, this lady, she was the head of history and philosophy of science. And she wrote an email to, basically, it's a course which you kind of transfer to from science or medicine if you still want to study there, but you're not that bothered about science and medicine anymore. So she sent this course like, don't drop out if you, you know, if you want to leave science, do history and philosophy of science. But she accidentally sent it to the whole year. And I emailed her, I was like, hi, Pat. Don't know anything about history and philosophy of science. Never studied science, never studied medicine. But this sounds really cool. Can I start next year? And she did an interview with me. And then I got into the course. And yeah, I loved it. I I genuinely felt like that year of education was where I finally understood. Oh, this is why people go to, you know, elite universities and work really hard. Like they actually, you can actually learn some really exciting stuff. And actually that's what set me off on my healthcare journey because I learned about sort of the ethics and the morals behind NHS spending, how different illnesses are researched, looked after, you know, the fact that it's so much more sociological issue than a clinical one. And that's when I was like, right, I want to be a designer now. And, and the Francis Wilmoth dissertation, congratulations on that, by the way. Oh my God, you've done so much research <laughs> into me. <laughs> thank you, thank you. We're, we're, we're secretly FBI. Um, (laughs) You could be, seriously. uh, So what was that dissertation on? Yeah, I mean, essentially it was about the histography of smell. So basically I was talking about how, you know, we we have names for colours. Why don't we have names for smell? And neurologically that's really complicated because the bits where you describe words and store words is in a completely different part of the brain to where you smell. And it's actually more of an emotive experience. And there's been so many different charts over the years where people have tried to categorize smell either by comparing it to color by comparing it to musical notes there's even things where people relate it to acid smells and basically i was analyzing each of these charts and saying do you not see how this isn't a consistent scientific method because you're using emotive words like pungent and comparing it with more substance-based words like sulfuric and how can those be at all comparable But then I think the reason why I got the prize was because I was like, how is it okay to reference an image in a essay, but not a smell? So instead of submitting an appendix of images, I sent a perfume box and I just (laughs) said, yeah, if you want to know what I'm talking about, just literally smell them. I think they said it was the first ever perfumed thesis that they've ever received. And I was like, oh, I'll take that. I will take that. (laughs) How big was the perfume box that you sent them? Oh my God. It was like, it wasn't that big. It was like a circle. But I had 3D printed like a little stand inside which had all of the bottles numbered and everything. But I just, I'll never forget handing that in. And the guy at the desk, he was like the admin guy who's in charge of collecting all the papers. He literally just goes, I don't know how to file this. I don't even know like where the space in the filing cabinet will go for this. I'm just going to have to put a post-it note on it and put it on top of the cabinet. I don't know what to do with this. And I was like, oh Christ, is this even going to get lost? What's going to happen to it at the end? But (laughs) it seemed to go through okay. Wow. Before you decided that, did you have any doubt about doing this? 
No, because again, I think with being spontaneous, I was just like, nah, I'm really interested in perfumery. I'm just going to make this degree work to writing something about perfumery. And luckily, I was given the most amazing supervisor who basically helped me with the English language and making it an academic argument so that I could just build out my perfume box. (laughs) Oh, fantastic. (laughs) It is weird because someone's definition of pungent might not align with your definition of what pungent is it's just like, exactly it's really inconsistent and as someone that is quite literal as well it, it bothers me a, a little bit when yeah. someone says oh this smells but like it smells good or it smells bad and then if you say stinks that usually means a bad thing yeah like, it just it's like a stronger version of smell and even like the notion that something smells even saying that in the first place that comes from a very neutralized world where smell has slowly been brought out of the picture like even in the middle ages you're walking down the street you are smelling a ton of different things and a ton of other odors that are trying to mask those original odors actually just really quick side note but if you are interested the best one i came across was actually by um a sommelier like a wine taster and it was a whole chart where they had provided a recipe book so if you actually wanted to know what words she was using to describe the smell you could make the recipe yourself and be like Mm. oh okay she's referring to this and that gets rid of that kind of difficulty in translation right right yeah it's more direct in i see so obviously you're in graphic design and we read your little comic series titled (laughs) grandmother's tales and that was kind of wholesome to read that was um, (laughs) it was really nice to read do you see graphic design as a way of expressing yourself? You know, a lot of people use art to to express themselves. Mm. Is that what you're doing with graphic design? Definitely. But I guess definitely in that sense with the comics. But I guess the role of a designer as opposed to an artist is that I feel in general artist work is very self-reflective yeah. or is self-led and responding to, I don't know, something which you have noticed. Whereas I think with a designer, the products or the things that they're making is generally trying to speak to a problem or a brief that they've been given or something they've observed um, is as a human problem. So I think the the responses that a designer comes up with, I would hope, are able to be used or resonate with more people. Whereas I think with an artist, it's people are resonating with one individual's experience. And again, obviously massive generalization but I think this is why design appealed to me more because it was like how do you create something that is using your own experiences but so that so many people with different experiences can understand and I think comics was definitely one way of doing that was like how do you translate this whole thing we were talking about earlier actually of like growing up with a first generation person but in a way that people will understand from other backgrounds and that's where that comic came about just as a little cheeky cheeky story of my grandma but uh more generally like a a lot of the work I do as a designer in healthcare is more like oh look at all these systems they were built years and years ago to cater for completely different things that they cater for now and how do we actually make sure that people who are using those systems feel at the center again so actually it ends up being a lot more um talking and then the work that I create at the end becomes an amalgamation of all those conversations with all those patients or whoever it is. And yeah, and then it becomes an expression of those experiences. What would you most like to achieve with your work in in healthcare through design? Because you're saying you've got a few issues of 
the way it currently is, right? Like some of the stuff was developed from a very long time ago and catered for like different people. So what kind of changes would you like to see? Yeah. Wow. I mean, in it with the big questions, Patrick. <laughs> yeah. Um, in short, I think my biggest change I'd want to see is how medical information is tailored to different groups of people and not just in terms of language or whatever but also cultural translations and also accepting that some of the medical information that we have nowadays is out of date so I think a friend of mine who's a doctor said that it's really high percent like over 80 percent of NHS complaints are communications based so it's not necessarily oh I was prescribed the wrong medicine but it will be something like I was told my my scan would be at this certain date and that it would do this and it didn't. And essentially communication is a design issue. And I think designers are trained to look at communication in perhaps a more holistic way. And I think if my career can just be about helping understand what information people want, COVID being a prime example of this and how medical information can be so misinterpreted in so many different ways. You know, for example, with a lot of the Vietnamese community, particularly with the the elder aunties, all of the information about the pandemic has been translated through word of mouth from that one niece that's a doctor. Do you know what I mean? And then slowly, like, things get tapped on. And you have to acknowledge that that's how people were getting their information. So it's all very well and good making your website perfect in multiple languages but if no one's going to go to that website they're just going to go whatsapp anyway how are you getting into that um and just making ultimately making people feel more in control of their own health which i think sometimes the health system here isn't as good at doing or can place blame on people who don't do it but they weren't even to know that they i could talk about this for hours so i will stop but i just wanted to give one example of um A friend of mine was saying a very common thing with seizures is that they're really difficult to diagnose Mm. um, because a lot of the time someone will come to you after they've had a seizure and not while they're having the seizure. And you can only really effectively diagnose seizure when you see it. So there's been a huge case recently where like loads of parents are going to A&E saying, oh, my kid had a seizure. And the doctor's like, can I see the video? And then the parents are like, what video? And they're not supposed to know that when their child's having a seizure, oh, you've got to take a video. So how, who's communicating that? How is that getting out of there? Is that the most effective way to track seizures? This sort of questions are, are, I guess, what I'm really interested in. Yeah. Okay. That was a bit of a tangent. (laughs) No, no, no. I think we do need to do a two-parter. Like episode one was more about like culture and identity. And then episode two, we can talk about Um, because healthcare in itself is a huge topic and I just I don't think we've got time for it (laughs) which is such a shame and we could make it Asian as well because there's so many from the Asian diaspora that health related for example with us it's uh I've even got some here the the yo I don't know what medicated (laughs) oil I swear by this this actually oh really yeah I love it I swear by it but again, that's like, how does that translate into the Western medical? Yeah, yeah. You know, it doesn't, full stop. No. So <laughs> what, yeah. yeah, I'd love to talk about that with you guys. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> sounds great. Um, finally, is there anything you'd like to promote or talk about? Like mm. your website, Instagram? Well, my website and Instagram are both Sophia Lou, like mm. S-O-P-H-L-U-U, and then number 22. 
one thing I'm doing at the moment actually is I'm trying to design a board game is trying to highlight how difficult it can be for some people to go through the GP process, not by any fault of their own, but just because of the way the system can be. Mm. I'm still prototyping it, still coming up with ideas, but if anyone is interested and wants to play test it with me in the future, I would I would love uh, for you to get in touch. Okay, cool. Thank you. Well, thank you very much. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank uh, you. It's been It's been a really nice chat. Oh, it really has, hasn't it? So, that's the second episode of the Open Door podcast with Sophia. She was really, really enjoyable to talk with. We're definitely up for testing out her board game, and if you are too, please get in touch with her. We're sure she'd love to hear from you. So, Patrick, how did you find this episode yeah i really related to her when she sort of had her quarter-life crisis about (laughs) what kind of world and social environment our kids if we have any will have to navigate you know my current partner is white british and this topic has been on my mind a lot obviously i still want my children to participate in chinese culture and traditions but what if they just simply don't want to (laughs) Or what if they identify with their white British side more? Um, At the end of the day, I want them to embrace their Chinese identity side and I don't want them to feel like it's a chore, you know? And I think that's something all ethnic minorities have to think about in the future when having Mm. kids, which is why I'm still not sure how I would feel about them not embracing their Chinese identity. I think the fear comes when they get older and they reject it then, which is something we have to think about and try to understand from our children's perspective. Um, And when she said that when she went back to Vietnam or went to Vietnam for the first time, it felt really weird how she knew a lot about the culture and the language, but still felt like an outsider. I've definitely felt like that when I've gone back to Hong Kong, but... I suppose the difference you could say is, you know, she said she feels like she doesn't look 100% Vietnamese and therefore she gets a lot of looks because of that. Mm. But, you know, arguably I, I can quite comfortably fit in. Yep. So, so there is a difference, um, Definitely. I suppose. Another thing that was really interesting that she brought up was that she felt like she had almost something to prove to other ethnic groups to to show that she's not... Um, and I think I'm quoting her here, to show that she's not another white girl. Um, Mm. And this was really interesting because when I was younger, I took the complete opposite approach in that I would go out of my way to fit in with the white people and just to try and say, I'm not so different from you guys, you know? Mm. Um, Obviously, I don't do that anymore. I've come to terms with my Asian identity and I'm really proud of that now. But yeah, yeah, it was 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 interesting to see her her perspective. I think it's because she had more of a power to choose how she wanted to identify herself. Mm. And I felt the same as you. Um, When I was younger, I always wanted to fit in with the the white kids more because I didn't like feeling like an outsider. Yeah, I suppose you can say that she had an option, I guess. You know, with her saying that she felt like she kind of looks more white than Asian. Well, she was saying that even British people mostly can't tell that she's mixed race. It's 
it's more of the uh, the Desi people that were able to spot the Asian side of her straight away. So, if by default people assume she's white, then I guess she doesn't really need to fit in with white people. But, if it's by default, then I don't think you can say that she has a choice, because then you have to consider what if she wants to be seen as Asian, and people aren't seeing her like that. I mean, my impression was that that's what she was trying to say her problem was in Vietnam. And I think parallels can be drawn in that she wanted to look Asian, and and we not necessarily wanted to look white, but at the end of the day, all of us just didn't want to be seen as different, right? So... I don't know if you can say that she had a choice because there's still a part of her identity that she felt she didn't really fit in with. And I think that's just the curse of being multicultural. You know, um, how you look doesn't matter. But if you're from two or more different cultures, then there's always going to be at least one where you don't completely fit into. At least one, if not more. But yeah, anyway, what were your thoughts on the episode? I found it interesting that she didn't feel offended by other ethnic minorities asking the question, where are you from? It was only when she was asked by some white people that she did feel offense to a certain degree. I myself thought about this a lot because I didn't mind it as much when my second generation immigrant friends asked me the same question, where are you from? So I think she's right in saying that there is this unspoken solidarity in this shared cultural identity issue of belongingness and culture. And after hearing Sophia share her experience, I feel like I have cause to re-examine why I think in this way. So I'm very glad that she brought it up. Yeah, and what we said about the fact that intention is a very important factor to consider as well, which is a really good point. Intention and context, I think these Mm. are very important things to consider. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And also my second point is that I loved her explanation of the relationship between communication and mental health. It was something I never really thought about too much, but I'm really glad that she did. She said that talking through an event with other people, friends, family, who experienced the same thing, was a way to help understand and process feelings, rather than the other direct way, which is the question, how is your mental health? Because I think subtly analysing an experience, something you shared with other people, and talking to each other about how it affected you personally is such a great way to help emotional understanding. Yeah, it's way better than just sort of asking, how do you feel about this, you know? To bring that experience and the storytelling into it, I think is a really good way to bring out the emotional side. Absolutely. That about wraps up the episode. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed it. Episode 3 will be out same time next week. Please get in touch with us on social media and feel free to leave any comments. Links will be in the description. Thanks a lot and see you next time.